and Death, a Manual, Part 3 of 5, How Things Go Wrong, Reality Adjacent Real Estate, Planning Your Retirement, is copyright 2023 by Laszlo Salieri for the House of Forbidden Knowledge. All rights reserved. How Things Go Wrong Quite a lot of the prejudice against the dead is due to fear of the undead, and the bulk of the fear of the undead stems from the horror of having witnessed undeadness gone wrong, or having heard stories of that horror from second-hand accounts, whether real or fictional. It doesn't help that the stories are based on truth. Undeadness can go spectacularly wrong. Entropy doesn't stop merely because you've jumped one fairly low hurdle from living to dead but animate. Entropy comes for everyone eventually. Eternal seems like a synonym for infinite, and perhaps it is, but functionally, as applied to a lifespan, it just means an order of magnitude longer than what you're used to, or maybe two. Three at the outside. Humans are unable to grasp the implications of any span of years longer than that. Because humanity that would in any way seem familiar to us is barely 10,000 years old. Stone Age culture might be a couple hundred thousand years old. And the species itself might be a couple million of years old. Cosmically speaking, that's not a lot of time. But even the cosmos itself is merely billions of years old. Just as space is huge but not truly infinite, eternity is long but not truly infinite. And over a long span of time, things fall apart. That's what entropy means. So over a long span of time, even humans who have successfully made it to a reasonably healthy state of undeadness tend to fall apart. They can also suffer illnesses and fall prey to predation and violence. But rather than simply ceasing and disintegrating, some fragments can endure for a very long time. These partially surviving remnants are disquieting to observe, just like it's hard to be around the sick sometimes, or the mentally ill or how we would be filled with horror to see a severed arm or a leg trying to continue on as if nothing serious had happened to it. We look at the situation and we know in our guts that we'd never want to end up like that. But that's the kind of undead most people think about when someone mentions the term. If it's going to happen, we'd prefer it to happen where we don't have to look at it. The physical forms of the undead, for those undead that have them, can become untidy with time. Keeping unliving, preserved organic tissue in shape for the long haul is a losing game. Even leather rots, wood rots, bone dries out and crumbles. Proper fossilization is hard to engineer. How long a mummified or preserved body can last is a matter of technique, but even the best need a special environment to last more than a thousand years. A well-made pair of leather boots that gets a lot of use and maintenance still has trouble making it to 50 years, and almost certainly not a hundred. Molds and fungi take over. Bits fall off. On the whole, it's unattractive. A perpetually extended living form doesn't look much better, to be honest. The skin can age and become leathery or papery, the muscles can atrophy to just the fiber clusters that are used regularly. The bones can warp and twist, and cartilage never stops growing. Systems that are kept in good working order can experience hypertrophy and start to take on monstrous proportions. 
strange cravings and appetites develop to fuel parabiological processes that humans aren't typically trained to fully comprehend. Biochemical byproducts of these processes can build up over these extended periods and destabilize the delicate equilibrium of neurotransmitters, causing strange psychological stresses, unpleasant or changeable moods, and tics. Alternate systems of biochemistries and biophysics can develop unexpected odors or fields of static charges and otherwise help the entire form drift further into the realm of the uncanny valley. And that's when things are working mostly as desired. The complexities involved in maintaining a living or pseudo-living form beyond its usual warranty period encourage most of the embodied undead to stick to serial incarnation or abandon biological processes altogether. Animators, reanimators, and non-physical entities have an additional suite of problems. I've mentioned that the non-corporeal form can be a bit fragile, especially in a high wind, and here I'm speaking of the non-corporeal winds known as flows, and parts can come unglued. This is aggravated because the glue itself is a non-corporeal parabiological metabolic fuel. If you imagine the spiritual body as a hand that holds the rest of the non-physical components together in a bunch, then, when its fuel runs out, its grip weakens until it lets go of everything. This isn't 100% accurate, but it works as a metaphor. When pieces fall off of the non-corporeal element of an undead being, they tend to split along certain natural dividing lines. The personality and attendant memories are one part that can be torn away in total or in part, and without that piece your undead creature would have no identity or knowledge of its history. There is another organ that is dedicated to problem-solving that is vulnerable to detachment or damage. When undead creatures suffer deficiencies to this organ, they can be trapped by a confusing design on a piece of paper or a compulsion to count rice grains or sort pebbles by size or substance. Without a component that provides volition and decision-making ability, they may lose some or all capacity to act unprompted. And yet another critical piece when damaged or absent, is responsible for empathy, when present and healthy, and psychopathy, when damaged or absent. In living human terms, these issues are categorizable as tendencies to amnesia, to hyperfocus and compulsions and attention disorders, to failures of empathy and the ability to determine right and wrong along socially acceptable lines, which is also common among those perfectly rational beings who, for whatever reason, no longer see death or damage to a physical form as something to be avoided with the same priorities as a typical living being, and to executive function disorders and catatonia. These issues are as common to the undead, especially the non-corporeal undead and various of the animators slash reanimators, just as depression and anxiety and ADHD and OCD are among those living in the modern work or starve era, or perhaps even more common, being part of the extended dying process of the undead. For most, these problems are eventual. If you have the right senses, you can see these organs and tissues being blown away or shredded, or harvested by predators, when dealing with weak or injured non-corporeal entities. This damage is reversible in many cases, or at least ameliorable but only because non-corporeal organs are more interchangeable than human organs and replacements can be harvested from the disintegrating or the otherwise unsuspecting or unprepared, 
at least temporarily, and more permanently with effort and skill. All of these pieces have different names in different languages and different traditions. I don't want to start any fights by picking a scheme to promote just yet. Some of these categorizing and labeling schema are strongly tied to one cultural tradition or another and, unlike with human anatomy in the biological sciences, no universal system has been put forward. Then there's the problem that starving undead entities can steal a jolt of energy slash glue slash sustenance from another being that is experiencing some form of strong emotion. An undead entity using their already disturbing appearance to startle or disgust someone is frequently immediately rewarded. This does not help the reputation of the undead in general. There is an additional esoteric piece of undead anatomy that we have yet to discuss. It modulates a creature's level of interaction with the living, breathing, waking world. It's a strange concept, so forgive me for struggling with how best to describe it in common words. Let's try this. Sunlight, or sun-like light, is itself one of the major flows. It is a very strong flow and resisting it depletes one's glue energy very quickly unless one is appropriately grounded to the physical world. This grounding is a strange concept to much of Western society but not so strange to some other older cultures. This grounding, however, is the same as one's ability to make an impact, to cause a scene or a stink or a disturbance, to cast a shadow, to leave a footprint, to have a reflection, to have one's image recorded faithfully, to leave a memory in the mind of an observer, to leave a historical record. For the sake of simplicity, let's call this whole phenomenon your shadow, for now. This shadow is frequently anchored to, and also proportional to, an attached physical form, but it doesn't have to be, strictly speaking. But a shadow's absence, even more so than the absence of a body, is seen by many traditions as the explanation for why most non-corporeal entities have no impact on or relevance to the physical world. Without a strong shadow, as it were, being in the light is an unbearable burden. It seems a bit backwards, but that's how it works for the undead. This happens to living humans too if one has had their shadow damaged or stolen. Without a strong shadow, you are a figment. Forgettable. Barely here. Any exposure to the sun, any exposure to crowds of people observing, depletes you rapidly until you fall apart. By now you might be able to see the truth behind wealth of legends spawned by observations of the disintegrating undead. Undead that cast no shadows and have no reflections, that can't bear the light of the sun. Undead that can't manifest in the physical world, that live in compulsive loops that they can't escape, that lack all conscious volition, that have no memories other than those associated with physical objects, that have bound themselves to objects or locations or living people in a panic because their body was unexpectedly destroyed, that have lost all empathy and capacity for moral judgment that have reverted to bestial nature because their identities and memories have escaped, that are driven solely by ghoulish appetites, driven to attempt to subsist on blood and rotting flesh in fear, mostly fear, because food and drink doesn't work anymore. These are the shattered undead made from failed rites, botched techniques, rare pathogens, last-minute panic, and, not least, malicious sorcery. 
or perhaps a poorly crafted bargain with someone they thought they could trust. But keep in mind that the underscore healthy underscore undead can keep to themselves just fine and stay out of the tabloids. It's the damaged and the diseased and the broken that wander the sewers and dark alleys and live in decaying burned-out buildings and patches of wild dark forest and abandoned caves in the deep desert, just like the homeless and unwanted of any sentient species. Those are the undead the stories and legends are about. Unfortunately, short of a few tight-knit communities that keep to themselves, the damaged and diseased and deranged are also in the clear majority because if one's remains put up a substantial fight, even involuntarily, one can take a very long time to finish disintegrating. No matter how much one actually craves oblivion, it can be hard to get there when every part of you has its own instinct to try to hold onto to something, especially if the part that would consciously cooperate with disintegration has already been stripped away. That part always seems to have the most fragile and tenuous connection, having been trained already to wander nightly during dreaming. Many undead and undead-aware societies operate a bit of a clean-up program to take care of remnants. Some of the kind-hearted attempt repairs, but most simply consign the remnants to destruction. Nobody likes the bad press they generate. Reality-adjacent real estate I've covered this topic poorly so far, so let me try again. There are realms adjacent to the physical world, overlapping with it to smaller or larger extents, all of which are occupied, no ecological niche remains empty for long, and most of which are shrinking. Or, rather, the overlapping points of contact are shrinking. These are the places where the hidden folk live. Every culture has stories of hidden peoples. You should study them and make notes. There are many different hidden peoples and hidden lands. Mostly they keep to themselves, but some are aware of other groups of hidden peoples and of the larger world in general. A few even have embassies. To the less cosmopolitan of these hidden people, your own people might be considered hidden people, typically inaccessible to them, intangible, and the stuff of legend and rumor. The more you design and develop senses to be able to master a transition to a stable state of undeadness, the more likely you will be to notice and interact with these hidden places and hidden people and, in turn, attract their notice as someone to be concerned about. The physical laws of these places can be substantially different with respect to the world you find most familiar. Your physical form may or may not be physical there. Your shadow might not come along for the visit making your stay there in every way no different than a dream to both you and them. You may have trouble forming or retaining memories or keeping a grip on your other faculties, which may only prove problematic in the long term if you aren't bound to a physical form or have a weakened spiritual body. And as I've mentioned before, the farther in you go, the weirder things get. These places are in every way related to and sometimes identical to, the places you visit without your body when you dream. But if you bring your body with you, or a body with you, or have no body to which to anchor your various pieces, the rules can be very different, and the stakes much higher. Humans have evolved to survive these places with ease while dreaming, even as children. Humans are typically not as well equipped to handle more direct interactions with these places or their inhabitants. It is best that they mistake you for a dreamer until you learn the ropes. 
don't mistake me. I'm not saying these hidden people, fairies, jinni, trolls, we folk, etc., are undead. Typically they're just people about whom we have heard many insane rumors, although some of those rumors are true, and some true things about them are even stranger than the rumors. But some of them have their own undead to worry about, or relevant prejudices regarding the undead in general or the undead of humanity in particular, or simply prejudices about humanity regardless of one's state of being. Exercise caution. Be polite. Before visiting, do enough research to know what actions are considered polite and which are irredeemably rude. Try not to cause any political incidents. Does it seem like I'm off the main topic talking to you about these places? I assure you that I am not. Your body and your shadow, comfortably anchored to it, keep you in this physical world just like your mask keeps you on the surface of the earth. And I'm glossing over a deeply relevant principle of physics to put it that way, but I'll take a stab at that in a few minutes. The point is that without a firm connection to here, without your body, and sometimes with your body but without your shadow, you will drift into these hidden spaces without intending to do so, as long as your spiritual body is strong enough to hold you together. And without something to anchor yourself to one of these other spaces, you will drift right out again. Or further in. Or into a different space adjacent to it. What counts as a body to these spaces, and what counts as a shadow, is specific to each space. You'll have to think in terms of extra dimensions, which, in practical terms, just means more directions to get lost in. But these directions mostly overlap with the usual directions at first until you start noticing that things that you thought were true are different now. You would not go amiss to think about the Mandela effect right about now, and those differences start to get more and more strange. For any particular place the rules are consistent, but that does not mean that the rules will make any sense to you in the slightest. But once you are anchored to one of these places, your original physical world will be less accessible, less real, and the rules there will start to make less sense. This is all perfectly ordinary. This has to do with how causality works with respect to overlapping inertial frames and how the experience of accelerating forces puts us all in slightly different inertial frames with respect to each other. But it never really matters because the frames 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
Flows follow the topology and in some cases are the topology, or how the topology is expressed in physical terms. If history seems strange to you sometimes, perhaps the history of your culture happened mostly in another place where the rules were different and your people migrated to, well, wherever you are now. This is why I don't talk about the physical world as the real world. They're all real, and which one is most real to you is a matter of relativity by every single definition of the word. It's just that the inertial frame of that corpse you're currently wearing is the one you've called home for most of your life, and things outside your body's inertial frame aren't real in any measurable way to you until and unless you break free from that body or get a different one, or, of course, you and that body get accelerated into a different inertial frame that overlaps more with there and less with here. It's likely that I've lost you, and that's okay. The simple way of putting it is that when you leave your body behind, you go where you go when you dream. If you want to stay there safely, as part of your retirement plan, there's work to do. If you want to come back here and stay, there's work to do. If you just want to explore and see what's out there, there's work to do. If you want to try to stay with or near any of the hidden peoples, then some of that work will likely be political, or at least PR-related. Any and all of this work is best done ahead of time, while you have access to more resources and all of your usual faculties. Planning your retirement Before you start your quest for prolonging yourself, you should weigh the risks of unpleasant outcomes, or at least those unpleasant outcomes for which one might remain aware of one's own misery because that's a somewhat smaller subset, against the improvements in your quality of life that you expect more years to add. And then I would invite you to examine your expectations critically, because they might not be as realistic as one might think. For many of the 8 to 10 billion people on Earth, life is a study in hardship. More years could well just mean more hardship, especially since the undead have smaller and more fragile social networks to help them through rough times. Though your needs for things like sustenance and shelter might be lessened, you will still need to account for them. If your prolonging does not go as planned and you suffer a deficit or injury, your needs for such things have a substantial risk of increasing while at the same time being limited to a smaller range of solutions that would satisfy. Regardless, if you remain in society, valued and employed, most needs can be met with a sufficient amount of money. But will you have enough? Even if you manage to stockpile some wealth, on the scale of an elongated existence, economies inevitably fail. Even markets for precious metals and gemstones collapse. Are you aware that aluminum used to be a precious metal? And that diamonds are now so oversupplied due to constant mining and warehousing that the collapse of their value has been imminent for decades not even considering that lab-grown perfection will soon be available for a few dollars per carat? There are asteroids full of gold and platinum and rarer elements in sufficient quantity to pave all of the streets of the world, waiting in orbit right next door to descend by the cartload. Most of undead society is constantly economically nervous, to say the least. No stored wealth is safe. No market is reliably cornered, not even the monopoly one has on one's own unique skills and labor. Advanced automation makes more and more exclusive talents and skills redundant every generation. Of course you only need money if you plan to remain in society. 
If you prefer to live on your own or in a small enclave somewhat closer to nature, you need to understand that every square centimeter on the surface of the earth is 100% claimed. If you had hopes of squatting in some wild portion of a desert wasteland or inaccessible mountain slope or tundra or jungle or swamp and encouraging rumors of a curse or, well, some kind of monstrous infestation to maintain your privacy, you need to be aware that these solutions are decreasingly feasible in the modern era. Surveillance is tighter, borders are more guarded, weapons are more devastating, and landmines are absolute bastards to anything that still has legs and weighs more than a medium-sized dog. You should consider that any place remaining that you might think would be perfect for one of undead nature to range and hunt on one's own is already occupied by someone older and more experienced. I'm not trying to imply that there aren't any solutions. But I feel obligated to make certain you are aware that the workable solutions are getting more rare with time as the surface world gets more crowded and increasingly well monitored. There is still plenty of room underground, though perhaps not for much longer. And you will not be the first person to think of it. There is still room in the oceans, but you will not be the first person to think of that either. There are many old monsters and remnants of monsters in the deeps where the light of the sun does not reach to finish taking them apart. Fortunately, there are thousands of species of tiny creatures willing to finish the job of disincorporating even the largest, with time. Your physical form will need to be designed along different lines, and you will almost certainly want to think larger. No, larger than that. Larger. If the idea of fending for yourself is starting to lose its charm, there are a number of undead societies in operation where the members look out for one another. They are exceptionally exclusive, however, and value their secrecy for absolutely every reason you can think of and probably a few more on top of that. Many of these societies are very old and maintain bizarre cultural practices and prejudices. There is the potentially balancing benefit that the older societies preserve techniques for preventing and repairing certain kinds of damage or disability that might accrue to one over time, but also are quite expert at dismantling those among them that suffer irreparable injury to prevent both prolonged suffering and spontaneous ravaging. These societies, in general, carefully maintain their numbers. They admit no one until there is a vacancy and vet replacements with utmost scrutiny lengthy probationary periods, vicious or fatal punishments for the smallest infractions, and, in many cases, significant periods of debasement or servitude for new additions. Also they can occasionally make war on each other with the slightest provocation, but, it has to be said, the quietest war you could possibly imagine. Exposure is the nuclear option which no one seriously considers. Those who risk exposure are instantly ganged up on by all parties, pithed in whatever way is convenient, usually damaged to a removal of one's volition, and dropped into the deeps. Many of the newly undead consider pledging one of these fraternities to be a distasteful necessity. Do your research and choose wisely. If you petition and are rejected, you may be destroyed out of hand in order to maintain the group's secrecy. It is possibly best to wait for a representative of one of these societies to approach you, if they think you will be a good fit, but expect to be exterminated if they reveal themselves to you and you reject them. Again, merely for secrecy's sake. Don't take it personally.
Stay tuned for the two upcoming episodes that complete this series. Part 4. Do not just skip to this section. Part 5. Finally, The Rite of Endless Night. The house of forbidden knowledge thrives on your attention and starves without your support. Consider becoming a free or paid subscriber and sharing the news of our work.